Welcome to the football pod. My name is Konstantin Eckner and please welcome with me my co-host Abel Mezarosh. Yeah, hi there. So in today's episode, what we would want to do is talk a little bit about football and math. So um, I'm, I think, Konstantin, I know that you're pretty good at football, but how, how are you at math? That's the big question. I actually did partake in some math competitions when I was in eighth grade or something. So I'm not that bad at math, but I think we will talk about more advanced stuff. So I'm not sure how good I am in this kind of things. But yeah, I mean, I'm not too bad in math, I believe. So how about you? Have you have you dropped out of math classes when you were in school? No, nothing, nothing quite as bad. No, I was, I was always pretty decent at it. But uh, yeah, I didn't didn't really care for it too much, but always did well. And uh, I think one of the reasons for me for getting into football and doing this as a job is actually kind of math and the sort of soccer analytics movement, which you know my my background um, of like kind of finding myself back into football slash soccer on the on the working side is through. American sports and, you know, the data revolution obviously took place. So in there, and, you know, we're, we're probably, some would say we're in the midst of the football analytics revolution. And that's, uh, that's the topic that we want to kind of talk about uh, today. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, if you want to support us, please visit patreon.com slash the football pod. So you said it, uh, math, that's our topic today. Our guest today is one of the smartest math people in football and Given his academic resume, he's also one of the smartest math people in general, I believe. We hope you enjoy our discussion with Mr. Zockermatics, David Sumter. So, David, I read that your book, The Ten Equations, Change Your Life with Mathematics, has just mm -hmm. been released in October. Um, and I was curious because of the title. So how do I change my life with math? Asking as someone who has decent at math, but not great. <laughs> well, there's lots of ways. I mean, the, the, the book has a lot of sort of practical tips about how you can use various equations to become a better person. So I use, for example, Bayes' rule, which is an old, very old mathematical result uh, to show you how to have better judgment, how to decide if a situation is risky or not. Um, I also, I use the confidence equation to look at confidence intervals, how many stars, if you, if you look at TripAdvisor, for example, and you're going to go on a trip, how many ratings do you have to look at before you, you know that you're confident enough that a hotel is going to be okay or an airline is going to be okay. So I have a lot of sort of practical, practical tips, but the, the book isn't, It isn't just about those. I think it's it's on. It has lots of sort of different levels, or at least to try to have it have different levels. And the other one is is all about kind of how maths is ruling the world, and how there are people who have learned all of these tricks. And I don't know what level of maths that you've got to, but if you can learn these tricks and get a job using them, you can make a lot of money and start to control a lot of people's lives. So there's a, there's those two two components to the book: the self help component where I can, yeah, you can be a better person. But then also this sort of background, trying to find out about how maths is really ruling our lives. I mean, that reminds me of uh, my math teacher who, who had actually a PhD in math um, at mm. when I was at 11th, 12th grade. And uh, he told me quite the same, that you can have a good, good living if you understand math. And I think most of his class understood math, but not to the extent that they could make a career out of it. Um, so you are, 
I'm, I'm, a lot of people know you. You are a math professor, you're a book author, but also you're a football consultant. Mm. If you like, have to write a quick little summary about yourself, you know, for LinkedIn or something, what's what's in there? What what? <laughs> who is David, basically? Yeah, I mean, most of all, to start with, I'm a professor of applied mathematics, and that's what I've worked with for the last 25 years. And my story really is I started with animal behavior. Well, I, I wasn't really that interested in animals, but I wanted to model something. And I got an opportunity to model honeybees for my PhD using mathematical models. And I went on to look at locust swarms, fish schools, ant trails, uh, human behavior as well. I looked at how we applaud after we've heard a seminar, for example. And from there, um, and that, that went on for about sort of 15, 20 years or something of doing these various studies together with biologists and sociologists. Uh, I also looked a lot at, actually, I, sh I should say this because I think it's important for the book. I also looked a lot at things like segregation in society and also social media and, and various interactions like that. But then when I wanted to write my first book, um, first popular science book, I I kind of got persuaded by an agent in London to write it about football because football, when I went through this whole list of different things I was interested in, football was one of the ones that I brought up and wrote a little bit about. And he got very excited. And, and that is what ended up being Socomatics. So Socomatics is definitely a, a football book in the sense that it's about how you can apply maths to understand football better. But it's also a book about those other things. Um, and I, I often say it's three-fifths football and it's two-fifths animal behavior and social mathematics. And it also relates to that, that idea kind of that maths is, is everywhere. You said that one of your interests back then was football and you brought it up uh, when you talked to, to the agent, I think. Um, but how much of a football fan were you? Were you just a casual football fan or were you like a hardcore, diehard football fan? What, what was your like football fandom yeah. back then? Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, I'm sitting talking to you on this podcast, so I'm not going to even try to claim to be a proper football fan. And, and, and actually, probably compared to the people that I interact with on Twitter... Um, I'm not what you would call a proper football fan. I liked football. Um, I like playing it as a hobby. I'm not very good. And I, you know, I, I used to watch a few games now and again, and it was a sort of social thing. So I was a kind of average British male football fan. Um, I've definitely become more of a football fan or more football interested after Socomatics. But when I started writing Socomatics, football was mainly a kind of journey to to introduce you to mathematics. But as I got into it, and it's also very similar to how I got into the, the animal behavior, as I got into the football, I started to see patterns and to become very interested in, in the game itself. And then I got very interested in looking at tactical aspects of the game. I'm not very interested in individual players, to be absolutely honest. I can never remember their names. I'm really interested in the tactical patterns that um, I see in the game. So it's a kind of different perspective. And that's probably what helps me have a different analysis now that I do, for example, work with clubs um, and in the media, because I have a, a different way of seeing things. I don't see it so much in terms of the individuals. I see it more in terms of the patterns of interaction on the, on the pitch and the long-term statistics. Yeah, and it's um, it's a little bit like I think in the Matrix they say that you know all, all you see is ones and zeros, and <laughs> hopefully that's 
<laughs> Hopefully that's, uh, I mean, I think, um, you know, there's an interesting discussion to, to have about football and mathematics, right? Because I think, you know, people obviously in, in the age of analytics, and, and we will see if that's an accurate description of, of the current trend, you kind of tend to think that, okay, this just kind of appeared out of nowhere. And I mean, if you look at sort of some of the football history that, that there's, you know, there, there certainly are mathematical elements and, you know, whether mm. it's just like formations or whether even like, I mean, you know, for, I don't know if you know this, but uh, like the, the sort of the shot charts that, that people are doing a lot on Twitter. I mean, people were doing that in the, in the 20s with, with mm. newspapers, the hand-drawn versions or, you know, and obviously you can, you can get into the, the Charles Reaps and, and, and the uh, obviously the, 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 the paths that it led, led us to and whether that was good or not. But um how do you how do you see sort of the general trend of football coverage when it comes to math and and and, and the analytics movement? Um, do you feel like this movement has made it has become mainstream or, or what do you what's your sort of yeah stance on that? Really, there's really but there's lots in that question, and I'm I'm trying yeah, sorry. to get to the heart of it. I mean, if if uh, if I just go back to what is mathematical about football. Um, because I like to distinguish between maths and statistics. And when you talk about the shot charts and maybe percentage um, possession, for example, to me, those are statistics. And yes, there's always been those types of statistics in the game. But what's special about football and is different from pretty much any of the sports, I mean, basketball is maybe in there, but of the big sports, it's got these patterns of movement and so it's not ones and zeros exactly. It's kind of, well, it's formations, it's movement into space and opening up space, it's synchronization between players. And that actually requires much more advanced mathematical understanding than just the statistics which go into, for example, expected goals or shot maps. And that means, so that, that means two things. It means that, yes, we've actually got more and more of the kind of expected goals type models coming into football and they pop up on the screen now and again and all the newspapers are writing about them. But to me, the the heart of the whole thing where you actually can describe the collective motion and the movement of the players and understand them better, we really haven't done that. So, yes, it certainly has increased in the popular popular sphere, but but it that kind of whole pattern part of it really isn't isn't out. I mean, I can, if you want, I can say some more about the, the, the what I mean by these patterns, more specifically with with regard to football. But yeah, um, please do. But but do do you feel like it's 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 a a matter of not having that sort of right person? Because like you know, I think I think a, a, okay, baseball is not comparable, right, to 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 football in that sense because it's baseball mm-hmm. is a incredibly mathematically mathematical game i guess for lack of a better term and we you know obviously the the narrative of billy bean and and moneyball how that's popularized it and obviously changed it uh forever and now it's become um you know a a game that's 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 basically ruled by analytics and turned the conventional wisdom has become um obsolete in that sense right and i'm just wondering maybe football is i'm sure you get this question all the time like maybe football is missing that person who can who people can identify with or I mean and I know there's candidates out there but do you feel that it's maybe lacking some of these intermediaries or translators or somebody who can really bring those to the advanced part of the 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 math um, into the mainstream or 
maybe that's not going to happen? It's interesting. I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that question before or thought about it in that way. Um, I think to me, the answer is like Moneyball, uh, the film is a sort of, um, uh, now I can only get the word in Swedish in my head. It's uh, um, it's constructed afterwards. It's an after the fact construction of something that happened, which then makes it look as if like one person or one small group of people invented this whole thing that uh, completely transformed the film field. So I imagine there might be a film at some point made about some person, you know, maybe Ian Graham in uh, in Liverpool, and that will be about how he transformed the entire world by banging on Jurgen Klopp's desk and telling them that he had to sign Andy Robertson or something. I mean, there might be that film made and it will look like that, but I don't think it's any different. I think the situation in football now is similar to the situation in baseball around Billy Bean's time. I think that there are, I mean, you know, I, I, I've talked to the people who work for maybe the top four clubs in the Premier League and um, also Barcelona, obviously, where I work with Javier on the Friends of Tracking Project and other, other places. In those clubs, there are people working away in those types of uh, situations. None of them would compare themselves to Billy Bean but you can just imagine that a few years time, somebody will go, oh, we've got to make like another one of those Moneyball type movies, but let's make it about football. And then, oh, well, who are we going to make it about? And then they'll just randomly pick one of those people. <laughs> they'll probably pick Ian Graham if I think about it. Um, but they'll randomly pick one of them and then there'll be a film about that person. I mean, in Ian Graham's case, it will be the sort of mild-mannered English gentleman revolutionized football i think it's a great plot actually i think we should stop doing this and we should start writing down this plot idea and send it to a hollywood studio because i think it would be um it would be brilliant but but my overall point is that i think we are at that sort of stage that things were in baseball um there's more and more being people being recruited into these clubs and behind the scenes they're working together with um, the coaching staff. And that's definitely what we've done at Hammerby, where I've been working. There I've had this just amazing experience where we've been able to work with the coaches. We've been able to work directly with the players. Um, we talk to the um, the sporting director on a regular basis. And we have a lot of debates backwards and forwards where we compare the numbers and um, the tactical things that the, the team is trying to achieve on the pitch. Yeah, I was uh, wondering about the maybe Michael Lewis is going to be, you know, su suing us because he's probably already writing this book, you know, given, <laughs> given how, how good he is. Now, maybe to pivot back to what you mentioned before that, um, meaning that like we, we have to look at like patterns rather than maybe, you know, just quantity output and so on. Because like when I came up um, through like more tactical writing and then I came in touch with um, you know, statistical, statistical analysis, I I found myself like not being that interested in all these shot maps that were produced and were offered to you. You know, you can use them and, and like do something with it. And I wasn't really interested in them because they, they didn't tell me anything really. Um And of course, a lot of coaches and scouts and 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 um, analysts they want to, for, you know, working for clubs, they want to look at like patterns and they want to outmaneuver opponents. Basically, that's like one of the main objectives. So you brought it up that like you have to look more at, at on patterns and you wanted to 
expand on that a little bit. And I wanted to to hear what you what you wanted to say um, about that. Like, what are these patterns, and are we already there, and can identify them, or is it still a long way to go? No, well, we've got some examples. So I wouldn't say we're all the way there, but there was a very nice thing that we did at Hammerby last season is that we were interested. We we want to play possession football where we, we move up the pitch and we, well, we have position in the final third. And then we want to know where should we position the other players while we're pressing up the pitch. And if we've got five players in attack around the box, where should the other five stand? And there we actually use this measure called pitch control, which is is basically Will Spearman and Xavier Fernandez who've, who've developed this thing. But it tells you who will get to the ball first in different situations. And when I showed this to the coach, Stefan Bilborn, we started talking about this idea of a cross. So um, uh, if the, defend, the two defending players, the central midfielder who wasn't attacking, um, the left back and the other central midfielder, they should position themselves in a cross in the offensive part of the pitch. Um, and this would cover a lot of space, if even if they had two attacking players waiting to, to counterattack. And it was a nice, it was very easy to explain to the players because we could say, you know, you need to be in these positions. And so Stefan would explain this to the players and it didn't matter who was in the position. So if, One, if one of the central midfielders was up, then the right back could take that role. Um, if one of the wingers found them found their way back further, then they could take that role. And then we could start to use variations of that cross. And so it it's not an advanced when you... Yeah, I mean, it, you maybe get the impression when I'm talking about these, these patterns that they're extremely advanced. It's not an, an advanced pattern. It's just a very... And you have to sort of boil down what you've seen as a way of controlling space into a simple rule that the players can then follow and keep keep a good positioning. So that that's one one concrete example, I think, of of how we can work in that way. Yeah, and I think what you're describing is is what like rest defense or like restverteidigung in, in German is, which is this, it's the word that they have for it is, is positioning the the players in a way that you know um, that are not involved in the attack. And and yeah, I think I think you, you make this great point about how you know. You, You you have the sort of analytics for for coaches and, and stuff that um, they will be asking for and and that's my experience is from talking to people in the game is that they tend to be more interested in in the patterns or occupying zones like it's right it's like the Guardiola quote where where he thinks you know formations are telephone numbers and most people <laughs> are interested in controlling the zones right like it doesn't yeah. really matter who controls that zone just as long, as long as you have a certain people you know providing enough width and and you know occupying different spaces on the pitch but. I think maybe there's the the public side of this, and and that's that's probably where expected goals comes in, um, which which is uh, you know I think I've had a little different experience than Constantine because to me this this language of analytics began with with XG and um, it helped me sort of think about it in a different way and and but but it could just be that it's a very public thing right because because and and we can debate about its. Uh, Usefulness or whether it's, its popularity is probably not debatable at this point, but but it, but it does seem to be something very um, easily understandable, which is chance quality, right? It, it's something that you would understand from watching the game. Is okay, a you know, shot from this distance is more likely to go in than from there, right? But um, but do you feel like maybe I mean, first, do you feel like it's become accepted? Maybe you don't agree with me with, on that, or 
do you feel like um, that it's that it's also a, a, a whipping boy in some case? And I know that like in, in some interviews or podcasts you've done, you, you're 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 talking about how there's no need to kind of fine tune it, uh, and because you know it's, it's not very like useful to have a better XG model, right? Because it won't it won't necessarily improve things. It's good enough for what it what 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 people use it for, and maybe there should be more focus on other things. Yeah, so. I think there's two parts I, I have to that. Um, the first part is the statistical argument and um, expected goals is only slightly useful. Um, and in fact, that's what we were just before we were on, we were talking about this article. Michael Cox had written an article about expected goals in week 10 or week 11 of the Premier League. There's this small window in the season where expected goals is is a more useful predictor than real goals. You can actually pick out the form teams. And so I posted on Twitter a um, uh, expected goals table because now if you're interested in the Premier League, this is the time that you should be very interested in your team's expected goals because that that form will probably continue for some time and it's a better predictor of, than where you actually are in the, the table. So that's that's very good. Around this sort of, there's this golden window, I think, between about six and 12 games where expected goals gives very good predictions of how good your team is. As you get later into the season, real goals is better because there are errors with the expected goals model. It's not a perfect model. So from a statistical point of view, there's that nice... Oh, yes, and what I really want to go back to is the the single match expected goals. That's not very much more informative than the... Um, than the the result actually results are very uninformative, but expected goals isn't much more informative, um, and that's what you see the most writing about, unfortunately, or that's what everyone gets getting very excited about. They say, "Oh, my team lost, but they should have won because their expected goals was one point seven eight or something." And no, that's not relevant. Like um, you can't explain it in that way because a lot of the results in football are random. That's the main factor. Your team lost because you were unlucky and in a general sense, not because of any particular expected goal um, thing. So so that way I, I find expected goals not, yeah, they're only useful in, in this sort of middle term assessment. And so we, uh, Hammerby, we, we use a, a 10 game expecting goal uh, rolling average to look at our performance. And we were very poor at the start of the season and there was a lot of discussion about what we could do better then we could actually see for a middle part of the season, we were one of the best teams, if not the best team. And then we sort of fell off at the end. And that's very important messaging for the um, chairman of the club, for the the board and so on. Um, so that's very useful in that way. Um, now I feel I've talked a lot. I can tell you the the way that I really think that expected goals is, is useful if you want as well, um, which goes back to the geometry. <laughs> yeah, please do, yeah. yeah so, so the way I, I really think it's useful actually goes again to the spatial pattern. And as you said, the closer you are to the goal, the more likely you are to score. But what we use is this idea, it's, it's how much of the goal mouth you can see is the value of the shot you're using. And so that becomes an easy message to give to the strikers or to the wingers. The more of the goal mouth you can see, the more likely you are to score. And then that defines a sort of circle around the goal. So there was a long discussion about like a sort of danger zone, which was a square, but it's more like a circle. So you don't want to go too wide either when you're trying to shoot. And that type of message, the players love, love that, both the attacking players and the defending players. 
because they start to realize where the most valuable places are. And I had early in the early in the time I was working in in Hammerby, I had a discussion with Moyo Tankovic, who's um, he's he's now moved on, but he was playing left winger, and he was saying, "Well, I never get into those you know those middle positions that you've said are so valuable." But what I could show him was by taking a few steps closer to the goal, he was going from a one percent chance to a seven percent chance. So in fact, he could by using expected goals, he could increase the value of his shots by a lot more than the striker who was in the sort of 20-30% zone. So those sorts of discussions, again, it's not about the the expected goals itself. It's about how you use it and how you understand the geometry of it to improve how you play. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 in that sense, it's it's kind of like the the inherent usefulness is as you mentioned is is, is the act the actionableness, right? Like that you can you can mm. be a, a player and 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 intuitively you understand those things or maybe you know some people don't right and i think that that's the power of it where there there might be i mean there's always like the the andros townsend or like the the philip kostiches of the, the world who you know the perennial bad shot takers and and if you are a coach you can definitely correct it because now it t- doesn't take that long to you know show that show it to them and, and they can just kind of um correct themselves and, and and obviously i think because you're a professional that's ideally you'd want to uh, be able to improve, but the question I wanted to ask is is more about the the models and and in the discussion that you had with our mutual friend John McQuenzie, you mentioned um, something about I mean you mentioned a lot about randomness and how people like to um, like to believe the models almost too much, right? Like you you talked about how when you when whenever um, a data analyst or, or a consultant with with math uh, tends to work with the club they go through this phase where first everybody's skeptical and then they kind of believe you know that's sort of like the, the 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 magician right like first there's the skeptical and then there's too much faith and 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 um you know and maybe you know could that be something could that have something to do with just the way people kind of um understand or the way they uh, perceive expected goals models on a single game waste, single game basis is that um, they have they have this problem of interpreting randomness right like we don't like to um, we don't like to believe that there's randomness in our lives I think okay we understand that it exists but but we don't like to believe that it, it's there so we like to believe the model right like we like to because it's tangible right it's easy to, it's easy to see so maybe um, and and I, and I know that in the book you 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 talk a lot about how you know uh, everything in the world is much more random than it is. Um, so I'm just wondering if you can maybe comment on that. Yeah, no, that's a that's a fantastic point, and you you know you've really summed up a, a lot of the way I reason about this as well. I think the important thing to remember about all of this mathematical modeling, and this I bring up in the ten equations a lot, is it's about having an edge over everybody else. And that edge is, in gambling, for example, it's a 1% edge that you have. In football, if you're working in a club, if you're thinking about a good analyst working in a football club, they're working on a 2% edge, maybe, at the most. Um, And that's a small difference, right? But it could make a difference in the long term to your, your club. But if you do happen to win a lot of trophies and so on, it's not going to be exactly because of that 2% edge. It's going to be that 2% edge plus some other random stuff that happened, plus some other stuff that's going very well within the within the club. So even over a season, a 2% edge is not much at all. Um, 
in fact, Ian Graham did a, a, a conference in Barcelona. He did a calculation of this, showing that it was kind of a if you were a top, if you were competing for the top four, it was a sort of fifty um, percent, this kind of small increase in the chance that you would qualify for the Champions League, for example. It wasn't anything spectacular, and I think that's the misconception: is that after the we're interested as football fans, and of course I'm interested in this too. As a fan, I'm interested in the result um, that's just happened. I'm not interested in a two percent edge over a three year period. I'm interested in the result. And so there's a big difference, a disconnect there between what the mathematicians and statisticians who are working in the clubs are doing and what the public perception is. And the important thing here is that it's not meaningless um, because it's 2% repeated over and over again. If you have those mathematical skills, and again, this comes back to the idea in the 10 equations. In, in the 10 equations, I present it that mathematicians are like this secret society which I call 10. And what they're doing is that they're, they're taking this edge in all different businesses and they're taking it slowly over time and outperforming the ones who aren't taking that edge. And that allows them to become extremely successful. And so it's not that, and it goes back to this, why, why can't you make a film about this? Because you can't really make a film about it because it never really is that you won the league because of this particular idea. You won the league because you had a small edge, plus you had some luck, and that's always going to be the true story. And it doesn't make it doesn't make for good football journalism or something you want to read. And it doesn't make it certainly doesn't make for a good plot for an hour and a half long film. So no, no movies about the Vanguard Index Fund when you can do the Wall Street <laughs> stuff. I mean, of course, you can you can portray it in another way. And I mean, of course, I write I write books, so I'm, I try and portray that edge in a in in some particular way so you don't have to portray it as an individual but it's not down to one individual and it, I, I write in in the book I write about the skill equation and that covers a lot of how analytics is done it's making the right assumption um, I also talked to now his head my his name's gone out my head who works in basketball as well um, anyway the, the, I've talk to various people about about this but it's not down to these one individual person it's it's really about the um the sort of group effect of of them working within these um well they yeah they have this sort of edge over everyone else i've i've lost my train of thought now <laughs> ask me another question <laughs> no, no worries uh what i what i've taken away from what you just said is that there is a secret society of <laughs> Mathematicians. Yeah, that's so, the most important part. So the conspiracy theorists or the conspiracy theorists among us are now intrigued uh, to hear more about the secret society who is probably running the world. Um, <laughs> this is going to make us so popular. You know, it's real, and um, uh, I I don't believe in conspiracy theories. So all of the stuff about QAnon or uh, Illuminati or something like that. I mean, that's 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 just not true. But how? the way that I describe how 10 manages to exist is that nobody knows it's there. And so inside all of these mathematical journals, the, the example I, that really sold it for me was the following. So there's a guy called William Bedner, and he worked in horse betting in Hong Kong. And his algorithm, um, his mathematical model, his equation made nearly a billion dollars for him and his associates on horse betting. 
And that's amazing. And he came out when he when he retired, he just came out and he said all of that. And he started sponsoring different research in universities and so on and using his money in this way. But what was even more amazing was that he published his method in a scientific journal in 1996, right at the start of his whole career. And so he published the equations he was going to use. He published evidence that they were working. And this article has like, it had less than 100 citations. I compare it to an article I wrote about how ants choose a new nest, which had 320 citations. And so nobody saw this article. It's just sitting there in a journal. And then not only that, he made a video just explaining it all, you know, in a calm voice, like, here it is, this is how it works, blah, blah, blah. No one pays any attention to that. They're all just following after some tipster they've got some idea about, or they're using their hunches and so on. So that's where the conspiracy comes from. It's a sort of conspiracy hidden in the mathematical equations, which take effort for you to learn and to understand. Now, there's something I can really, like... Uh, get getting close to basically because like I I think I when I was in academia I've written a few journal articles that also mm-hmm. probably have been read by fifteen people or like let's say a hundred people if it's <laughs> if, if it was one of the larger journals so <laughs> I think there's there's something there I can really I can really feel it uh, it's like yeah I mean no- I, that that's the difficulty I suppose is to if you're analyzing these journals, it's to sift through the ones that, but, but this was, this was very obvious. This was like, here's a betting system that works. And uh, the title said it all. So it's, it's, you don't need to sift through all the other, the other articles to do it. But I mean, it's, it's academia. Of course I've worked, I've worked in academia for a long time and it's a, you have to have a sort of special type of mentality and it is a long-term mentality. I don't know. Are you still working in academia as well? Or have you given up now? More or less, I mean, in, in the aftermath of my PhD, I'm, I'm still finishing up a few uh, journal articles. Uh, okay. But as you said, like, it, it's really, I mean, you, you have to accept that um, not a lot of people really read them. And it's like the same when you go to conferences, right? I mean, you can talk about the most fascinating um, um, research you, uh, someone has done or you have done, and like 15 people will listen to it. And it's yeah. like... <laughs> And and then especially because in my in my life, like I have like the academia thing, um, or that has been going on for a while. But I also see journalism where you maybe write something that's much less insightful, but I don't know five hundred thousand people will read it. Mm. Um, so you you see like difference. Of course, it's not only, it's not always uh, uh, only about exposure, uh, but still, I mean, there's there's like a big difference and a big. Um, yeah, there's there's something um, more or less that's really dividing these these two fields. Um, what I this is the jo- the Jordan Peterson effect, I think, which you're describing. Yeah, maybe. I mean, now um, you you mean that like mathematicians or other other people who are really smart but don't have the exposure, they have to get out there and like scream at people at some, at times. No, just just the stuff that like you, you mentioned how, you know, you, you, you could you can I, I think like this is also something what David was talking about with with John and in, in, in their conversation where, where somebody talks in a very sort of calm manner and, and says says these things which which could be like wildly uh wrong, but but people believe them. It's a lot about the packaging. Anyway, you you were gonna ask a question. Yeah, of course. I mean, I was also curious because because the headline of the journal article was here's here's a perfect betting model or something. <laughs> something uh, like, oh yeah, see, it was a you know a betting model with the wins money on horses, something like that. <laughs> but but it also sounds like one of these junk emails you get, you know. <laughs> 
Like, yeah, no, absolutely. So, so that I, I think that's where the secret code comes in. So you wouldn't, if you didn't have the background in mathematics to know what the techniques were being used, then you might think that it was a junk um, thing. And you would actually need to read more than just his article. You'd need to read a few more to check the robustness of the results and so on. So there, there's a, a bit more to it than that, than just picking up this article. I, there is no point without the mathematical background. The, the equation you use for this is logistic regression, uh, which is a, a kind of standard technique for finding out um, if you, if there's a statistical pattern or not. And so you use that method and you'd have to know how to use it and you'd have to understand how he used it in this particular case. So there's definitely there's definitely some some stuff around that. Um, now you said something I was very interested in, but I've forgotten what it was <laughs> before we, we got into this. We, well, before Jordan Peterson came up as well, which I'm also interested in and the, the confident thing. But then just before that, you said something about the. Um, um, oh. It's not always about exposure, is it? Sorry? It's, it's not, not always, always it's about, always exposure. about exposure. I mean, uh, yeah, I think that you have to have that sort of certain academic mind to continue doing these types of things oh yes i know what i wanted to say it was about the friends of tracking thing because we did this during the corona thing we did uh, this friends of tracking uh, video series on youtube and that's reasonably popular some of the videos have got nearly twenty thousand views and so on but what was fascinating there was it was the same thing you know like if you take will spearman he works for liverpool now javi fernandez works for um barcelona um, Suds also works for he works for Benfica, and they were writing articles in journals, and they were getting three or four citations. Like nobody was reading these things, and so what we did is we set up this YouTube channel, and we actually went out and explained how all of this research works, and that was very popular. And then people could actually access it, access it, and it's pretty much it ended up being the stuff that we covered in those videos was pretty much at the research level. And more and more people got into this and really kind of engaged in it. So it is possible to bring out these secrets, I think. And if there is a sufficient, large, sufficiently large group of people who are interested in hearing about it, then they get into it and they start to learn all of these techniques. So I ended up at the end of this, I ended up teaching a course with um, 60 students who went all the way from not knowing so much about football analytics up to um, doing the same sort of stuff that Xavier is doing in Barcelona or Will is doing in Liverpool. So one reason, and uh, that's perfect, a perfect follow-up, I think. Um, one reason also we want or we wanted to invite you is, I mean, I myself have gone through all the like statistical toolboxes, and you know there are a couple of companies that have have been founded in the past five or ten years and have much success, and. There's still like I would call it like black boxes, like things that haven't been really explored or uh, there haven't been solutions. And I think one thing, and I wanted to hear your opinion. Uh, one element of the of the football game is um, basically how we assess defending, because yeah. you know you have quantitative output, but that the uh, quantitative output not necessarily equals quality. And I think sometimes people get that wrong. They think like, uh, you know, a defender that has like a lot of output or makes a lot of tackles and other stuff, a lot of interceptions, like that that's a quality defender, but it's not like that. Um, I think, and also there's like, we can talk about like basically communication and what's what's the mainstream media and how it's maybe sometimes there are the wrong perceptions, but 
different story. But I wanted to get your opinion. Or I wanted to uh, hear what you have to say about basically black boxes or like things that haven't been explored, and also like like maybe defending or something else. Where I think like, all right, that's an area of the game. There's an element of the game where we're still don't really know or maybe you know secret societies know and you can now tell us about it um but but you know we don't really know how to assess this that you know x y and z like uh, i wanted to really hear what you what you say about it yeah i mean what, what you say is absolutely true and uh, interestingly enough i was just talking about it with a club this afternoon about uh, about that exact problem um the answer is well i mean let me let me outline the problem first and the problem in this particular case is if defend defending if you just measure the number of actions you do that's going to be a bad idea because we all know this idea that if you're doing tackling all the time you're not well positioned you do a tackle in the last resort well not always but you you don't want to be doing tackling all the time so numbers isn't good enough then you could maybe take where it happens on the pitch and that's what we do for example in the 12 analysis tool that we have available We look at the, we say, if it's nearer the goal and it's a more dangerous situation and you stop it, then you get more points and it's better. So that's a slight improvement, but it doesn't take account of the fact that if you messed up near the mid-circle, you have to chase a player down and you tackle them in the box and you get it back. You've still messed up in the first instance and maybe you don't get it back in this tackle, but if you do, even if you do get it back, you've messed up from the start. So... It's a real, really big problem using event data, which everyone has access to. And as you say, now there's lots of companies which have access to Scout data or StatsBomb data, and they're churning out their statistics. That's very difficult for them to measure defense. Um, what you can, what sort of things you can do to improve about on that? Well, one thing you can do is you can. Uh, this is just with event. I mean, maybe I'm getting a little bit too technical for this. I don't know. No, no, no. The event data, are you saying stop, it's too technical or not? Oh, it's fine. Okay. Uh, I mean, the event data is the X and Y positions of where the actions happen on the ball. And um, uh, one thing you can do, for example, is you can look to see the average playing position. And some some of the people we, we had the course, the um, Friends of Tracking that eventually evolved into course, they did this. They looked to see where the opposition team were generating danger from relative to where the defending player was meant to be stopping the danger happening. And that becomes a possible way to use event data to analyze defensive um, uh, defensive abilities. I see very few of these companies who are starting up with this type of thing using that type of metric. In fact, I haven't seen that metric used very much at all, but that's the proper way to do it with event data. We try we try to do that in our own work, but that's limited as well because, of course, in the end, it comes down to using tracking data, which is the position of all of the players, so you can evaluate those types of things. But there, as you rightly say, the problem isn't solved. So I mentioned quite early in our discussion that when we use tracking data, but what we do, we use it to discuss with the coaches about tactical situations. We can also use it to talk to the players about how they weren't covering space in particular instances. But I wouldn't use it to create a metric where I can say over hundreds of matches, this player wasn't controlling space because it just won't work very well. So there's definitely, when it comes to defending 
stats tell you a bit of the story, but they don't tell you everything. Um, on the other hand, the attack attacking football dribbles and passes shots. That's pretty. That's that's now getting more and more covered. We were very pleased. Uh, the the thing we do at twelve, we were very pleased. For example, last season that um, Andy Robertson and Trent Alexander Arnold came up as the two best players for the whole of the Premier League because they were generating lots of chances from wider positions more centrally, and that's because the algorithms we can use can actually pick out good attacking football pretty much however the coach has set up the team. But defending is still a problem. Yeah, and, and I mean I mean you mentioned about tracking data and it's the the issue, right, is if I understand it correctly, is that it's not very available, right? Like it's there's a couple of places mm-hmm. that are making it available. Like I think Metrica is, is one that's been putting some of it out there. But uh it's it's mostly and then you know clubs will will have it, some of them, but obviously um it's it's kind of tough to collect and you know you, you need to invest in the the wearable technology and those kind of things which which is a big market now from from what i understand and i think that the point about defense right is that inherently it's sort of harder to to quantify because you are trying to prevent something from happening so when you when you prevent those things from happening then they're by definition they don't take place right so then it's it's kind of how do you how do you count those and uh but but uh, i think from from internally as as, as you mentioned it's it's uh, the tracking data will be and it is really valuable it's just it's just i it's it's also probably harder to make a spectacle out of it or to use it in in media um and 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 the, you don't you know it's kind of hard to as you mentioned like it's hard to put a number on it and and i think you know one of the things with big data is that in terms of the, in popular culture as as we were talking about making movies out of these things that you you want to put a number on it right and you want to put a narrative about it and maybe it doesn't lend itself um to to that but um are there some other elements of the game that you feel like are kind of underexplored like i know that you know, um, set pieces are one of these things or um, you know, throw-ins or these I think, kind of things. Um, that I, I want to say something about the tracking data because the, what you're describing isn't quite the problem. So, of course, there, mm-hmm. okay. of course, if you're an amateur analyst, you might be frustrated that you don't have tracking data to work with. But for people like me who do have tracking data to work with, you soon find a new frustration. Um, partly is that there is inaccuracies in it. But it's just really difficult problem to understand football. Um, there's all sorts of phases to the game. There's all sorts of things that the coaches have said to the players and uh, trying to understand what what the play, what rules the players are trying to follow. Um, if they are really following what the coach has told them to do, you've got to measure things like synchronization between players. You've got to measure movement relative to the ball. Football is a really complex sport, and we just haven't solved the problem yet. It was quite interesting. One of the first, after I wrote Socomatics, um, one of the really big clubs, they flew over to Uppsala. Uh, they sent their sort of technical person over to ask me and, you know, sort of pick my brain about, like, what we could do with tracking data and so on. And I told him that, like, I was, I was running a, a lab um, looking at fish behavior at the time, And I told him that, you know, we have a million euros a year to run this lab looking at fish behavior. And this is fish. It's not football players. 
And if you want to do it with football players and really solve it and really understand all of those things, you need to invest a lot of money. And you might think that a million euros is nothing for a big club, but they don't have much budget left after they spend all of their money on players. And they none of them, I think a couple of them might be investing in this now, but for lots of them, there just really isn't that possibility. So there's just actually a small number of researchers working on these types of problems, and we're actually still a really long way from solving it. So it is partly availability of data, definitely, but it's also just the case that nobody has solved that type of um, problem completely. And then uh, what did you think about the other parts of the game that you think are still like under undervalued or under-examined, like set pieces or these kind of things? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I think Midtjylland have proved that. I was just watching them play Liverpool, actually. So, um, I mean, and, and they nearly scored from a set piece at a throw-in while I was watching. They scored a penalty and then, they, then there was a, a throw-in which they nearly, nearly got in on a second ball. And, um, uh, I mean, they've definitely, they've definitely proved that. I think, you know, if I'm being, because, uh, yeah, if I'm being totally honest about what I would, to start with at a football club, it would be set pieces. Um, I mean, even even simple things like penalty analyses, you can get some extra insight from that. Um, you can sort of teach your players how to hit the perfect penalty. Um, definitely free kicks, corner variations. We see this this all the time. I think that a lot of the people who are working as analysts for clubs are working on precisely those those types of problems. Um, and as I say, I think Mithilander just proof that um, that works. Great. Um, I wanted to ask you, because we are you know, c coming to an end a little bit, um, I wanted to ask you two things. And uh, uh, one thing is because I know that people will reach out to, to us probably, or m maybe they will reach out to you. Um, it's, it's one thing I get asked a lot. People are really excited about you know, analytics, they're excited about tactics, they are excited about football in general, but they also want to get in and like, like are really, um, I mean, especially you see it on Twitter, for instance, and you see it on blogs and, and on podcasts. And often people ask, how do I get in? Like, and, and I wanted to, you know, just uh, play the ball to you because, you know, I mean, um, what is your advice to people who want to get in other than, of course, taking a math course at your university? <laughs> <laughs> that would be my first piece of it. I mean, what am I meant to say? I, I think it's it's really difficult, right? And I think you've got to be, most of the people I know who are working in it, they didn't know that this would be what they would be working in. And this is very discouraging for the people who are trying desperately to get into this into this area. A lot of people were just really interested in scientific problems in general and trying to solve those types of problems. And somehow they ended up in contact with a football club uh, or working on a football project and just got really, really into that project. And uh, so I think, you know, I, I would, <laughs> yeah, this doesn't answer your question at all, but I think the thing that, um, The thing that's always driven me is just a sort of interest in how things work. And this is a useless answer, actually, because you have to form that interest your, yourself. I think it's not, 
Yeah, this is a useless answer. I should give some more practical advice. But the the main thing is just to have a interested mind and you just want to learn about various different things. Um, So that's the sort of philosophical answer. I should give some practical advice about that as well. And unfortunately, it does start a lot with the technical stuff. If you're particularly interested in being a data scientist in a football club, then you need to learn the mathematical tools which you can use. You also need to learn a lot about um, football tactics and so on. So you should take coaching licenses and those types of things. You should coach a, a junior team or something like that. You have to do those things in order really to understand the game. Um, and then, uh, I mean, how you approach, then you have to, then you have to do the Opta forum thing. So Opta have a forum where you can write you can write a proposal of some research project you would do you go there and you present those results and if you present good results if you've done all the homework about how to do the most advanced things in football analytics then quite a lot of those people i know have ended up working for clubs in fact i went i went i've been there twice and i think i went there 2016 and pretty much everybody who presented there in 2016 is working for a club now there was a, a small group of, of people called Analytics FC. And um, you probably know about those guys. And they're all working uh, in the football industry in some way. If they wanted to be, they are working in the football industry in some way. Some of them wanted to leave. but um, And then the guys around that time, most of them ended up working in the football industry. And so, and I still think that that's a that's a way forward. I think the present, the, some of the great best presentations from 2019, for example, have also found their way in that way. I mean, it's I think StatsBomb are recruiting loads of people, so it's um, to apply to them. They they seem to they put some value on like work done in the public arena. When we did the Friends of Tracking thing, talking to the various people who do work for clubs. None of them had done anything in the public arena. None of them had, you know, been out on Twitter and shared their stuff. They just got really good at what they do. I work, um, I work a bit with England and with their chief analyst, and they have a very intense. When when you apply for a job there, you're given a very difficult technical task to solve over some reasonable, well, quite short time period, and you have to solve it, and it's difficult. And you have to be good at it because later that's what you're going to be doing. So you have to be technically extremely good um, as well. So all in all, yeah, and, and that it goes also back to back to what I said about having the philosophy of being interested in things. Because if you become int- if you can find that motivation to just want to learn about um, analysis. I mean, you've done a PhD, Constantin, so you. But maybe afterwards you were disillusioned. I don't know. But if you can find that sort of um, inner interest in things, then it really doesn't matter what you do afterwards because you become just so obsessed with it. And that's what's happened with me, I think. That's was that was one word I wanted to to bring up uh, because you said interested in how things work. I think being obsessed about uh, finding out how things work. I think the word obsessed. Uh, might be even better um, suited <laughs> to, you know, the the kind of career path you have to you have to choose there and you have to go to um, <laughs> to to break into this field. Um, yeah, but I, I wanted to ask you. I mean, you, you're you're working, you know, in 
different positions, of course, but you're also a consultant and a um, quite successful consultant. So I wanted to ask you because a lot of people um, reach out to us and, and other people, of course, uh, that are working in some f form or fashion in football and and they and they try to find out how, how to get in basically i think uh, a lot of people are on the one hand they are interested in in you know analysis they are interested in math they they are maybe obsessed about uh, stuff like that but they are also like at heart they are football fans mm. and they think like like uh, football is the best thing that's 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 ever invented basically um so there's there's also kind of a mix between the two um basically um especially when people want to get into football Yeah, there's also a sad contradiction there, because if you're going to be obsessed with technical things, you're not going to have much time to watch football. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're, still, you're still going to have to go out and play football and enjoy it in that way. But uh, <laughs> it ends, ends up that you don't have any time left to actually watch any football and just enjoy it. You know, I was just sneaking in a half, half an hour of Liverpool before we came on here. And, uh, <laughs> and that's about it. <laughs> Apart from the Hammerbee stuff and you know the, the stuff I watch professionally, yeah. so it's <laughs> I, I don't know. I, yeah, I, 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 now I, I just feel I'm off on this rant about becoming interested in in things, and I, I think it's I, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I don't really have it. I have much to say about it. I'm just thinking but, a lot about it. But that brings it. me to, to one um, last question I wanted to ask, you know, relating to being interested or becoming interested in things. That's something completely different, you know, it has nothing to do mm. with football, basically. But I wanted to ask you, uh, and maybe it tells tells us a lot about maybe uh, us at, as human beings, more or less. Um, you wrote an op-ed in The Guardian. Um, recently, and I have to I have to say I've I've shared that article with a couple of uh, data scientists in in Berlin and Munich. So if you get uh, if you receive some love letters from from data scientists from Germany, you know where they are coming from, um, <laughs> or you know how, why they they are writing them. Um, so you wrote an op-ed in the Guardian and maybe arguing mm. that or arguing that uh, quote our collective mathematical knowledge has increased greatly during the pandemic pandemic so it's something completely different you know it has nothing to do with football but i wanted to mm -hmm. to ask you uh before we finish the show um because i i found that really interesting argument um and maybe interesting is even like uh, too weak of a word um why or what's what's basically your your um how do you come to that conclusion is it because we now have to look or you're just you feel incentivized to look at stats because this pandemic is just you know overtaking life or has has been overtaking life for so long now basically since march um or is it also because and maybe there's a connection to football or is it because there's a growing exposure to to statistics now because like the media is talking about stats you know you you got some people working in the media who do nothing else than just working on uh, corona stats you know infection rates and stuff like that and trying to come up with visualizations um you know at the financial times the economist and so on and these it is uh, large outlets so so what's What's your reasoning? What's what's your what's your main argument there? Is it is it because we we are incentivized now, or is it because of exposure? And as as I said, maybe this has something to do with football. I know in a way. I I think I would I would definitely take the exposure angle. Um, I think one of the sad things is that we haven't been exposed enough to this um, type of thing. And uh, yeah, of course we're interested because you know we don't want to die of corona which makes it makes it more interesting but i think um i think that we're not it's becomes a, it becomes an interesting subject that everything is written about and then we're exposed to those types of numbers because there's no other way to explain them 
And then we get interested in from that point of view. And I think it's the same with a lot of the things, how I've seen the development. You mentioned the football thing. It is how we've seen the development of interest in analytics in football is you start to see these things. You start to think, well, you know, how do they work? Um, And you want to know about the exponential growth of the virus and how people measure this and whether they're making reliable measure. And then you find out that it's actually maybe not too hard to plot these things yourself and to start play around, playing around with that data. And so I think there was a lot of people. I think it's very interesting with uh, John Bermudok, who works for the Financial Times, who makes all of those visualizations. Um, he was around on Twitter making them, and I've met John a few times. And he's been doing this stuff for a while. But then when the, the virus came out, it sort of exploded and now everybody's really interested in making their own graphs of these these types of things. So, so I think I think it's exposure to these. We we've been through different. I think we're evolving. I hope in this way. Like if you go back twenty years into the newspapers, it was all debates in words, and then we had this kind of whole thing with Gapminder and our world in data, and we learned all about data and how we could use data. Now I think, and this was the crux of the Guardian article is that what, what's happening now is we're actually understanding how to use models to understand that data and to use that data. So when we think about exponential growth or we think about Bayes' theorem, which I mentioned right at the start of this talk for having good judgment, those types of things are using the data to understand the world. And that's what I think we're being exposed to more. And I think that we want to be exposed to it and we want to learn about these things, or I hope we do anyway. Perfect. Um, that's why I also wanted to ask because I think it tells us something about us human beings. You know, not 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 all of us because the members of the secret society they are different, as we have learned. Um, <laughs> but uh, of course, about more or less the wider public um, and and how we how we uh, you know get interested in things. How we. But, but I do want to say about when I, I'm worried we're going to end on you saying the people in the secret society are different because they're not different. They're just normal <laughs> people who've learned some maths, right? And, of and course, we believe you. Know, of you course, to, yes. If you want to start today, you can start today and do it. So they they might be they might become different, but they are not different fundamentally. They're um, yeah. Sorry, I'm interrupting you there. Uh, no, just, I'm just, you know, just choking a little bit here. Uh, but uh, yeah, <laughs> okay. We we learned that all people are created equal, but there are some people that are smarter on math than others. Uh, maybe let's let's put it that way. Um, well, all people aren't you. created equal either. Well, sorry, I'm now I'm just being uh, contradictory about everything. But uh, <laughs> we're all people. All people have these. Jeez, well, it was just a metaphor, right? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Well. How do you get out of that mess now? <laughs> right, sorry. You do you do your brilliant summary. Yeah. I can see that the clock is ticking past the hour as well. So we have well, to. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. There, there isn't there isn't anything left to say. You know, there's there's no summary I can I can now make. It's just it's just we're going off the rails a little bit in a good way. I think. But it was really it was a pleasure talking to you, David. Uh, thank yeah. you for your time. Um, it was really you know we 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 should maybe do it another time again. Um, you know, just uh, because there are, I think we have there are some stones we haven't turned so maybe we can do that uh on another occasion and uh talk about our things um um yeah I've, i think and also you do a lot of great writing um and of course consulting and all the stuff but also in the public sphere you do a lot of great stuff so um i think people can also follow you and you know learn stuff um and they don't have to take a course at your university but of course they can if they want you know they can apply there 
Um, but if they want to get the David Sumter experienced light, they should follow you on Twitter. You are at Soccermatics. Abel is at BundesPL. I am CC underscore Eckner. And yeah, if you like our show, if you want to support our podcast, please visit patreon.com slash the football pod. And for now, we are out. <laughs> <laughs>